strength in unity and advancing social justice in Alaska are what people from across the state are focusing on as they gather together in Anchorage. Discussions include the state of economic, civic, and political rights among Alaska Native people and what's being done in the areas of healthcare, education, justice, and resource management. Many Native leaders say decision-making in these areas needs to include their voices on the local, state, and national level. Officials from various levels are among those meeting with leaders and community members. Join us as we take a look at advancing social justice in Alaska right after the news. From the 2017 Alaska Federation of Natives Convention in Anchorage, I'm Christine Trudeau. And you're about to witness history in the making. The nation's first compacting agreement between tribes and the state government was signed on the opening morning of the AFN convention. That was AFN General Counsel Michelle Borromeo making the announcement after Alaska Governor Bill Walker and Lieutenant Governor Byron Malott gave speeches about the urgent need to address social and economic problems in rural parts of the state. Signed by the governor and at least 17 tribes, the compact allows the state to yield authority to tribes to deal with cases where children are taken into state custody. More than 60% of those children are Native, and the state is woefully short on facilities to deal with them, particularly foster homes. Under the compact, the tribes get state resources to deal with these cases in what everyone hopes will be more culturally sensitive ways. State Health and Human Services Commissioner Valerie Davidson, originally from the village of Quingillingok, where Yupik is still spoken, is one of several dozen people, most of them women, who have been deeply involved in a year of intense behind-the-scenes negotiations on the compact. It's about our children, was said repeatedly. And that was made clear after the signing, when reporters asked her why this was important to her. After a long pause, she asked them to think about it from a child's point of view. And so imagine being in the most challenging situation of your life that's very traumatic, that's very scary, and you are having to use a language that is not your own to be able to talk openly and freely about what your, what your family is experiencing. Some tribal organizations are already handling custody cases under the Indian Child Welfare Act. Richard Peterson chairs the Clinkett Haida Central Council. He said Wednesday the agreement moved him to tears and that this is tribal recognition. Putting the power in the hands of the tribes, recognizing that we have the wherewithal through our own sovereign nation to take care and, and of our children and restore our families. Peterson, who also chairs Governor Walker's Tribal Advisory Commission, said this agreement points the way toward future tribal compacting agreements soon on other state programs, including transportation, education, and other areas, because it could be more efficient and save the state money. Earlier in the day, the appointment of an Alaska native to head the Bureau of Indian Affairs was greeted with enthusiastic applause when it was announced by Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke in a pre-recorded video. Um, Tara Sweeney served in the Alaska Federation of Natives Board, and I'm proud that we are nominated. Sweeney, an executive with the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, said it was an honor to be nominated. And I hope that, uh, if confirmed, I will... Uh, represent Alaska and the Native American community uh, well. 
In a morning keynote speech, Sergeant Jody Potts, Village Public Safety Director for the Tanana Chiefs Conference, described going out hunting caribou for her family. Before delivering a plea to both tribal councils and Native Corporation boardrooms to reflect on the values handed down of respecting the land, the people, their way of life. We need the courage from our leaders to say, no, we're not going to develop in the Arctic Refuge at the birthing grounds of the caribou. We're going to protect the Arctic Refuge. We're going to protect Bristol Bay and the watershed of the salmon. That's who we are. We were protectors. We're defenders of our people, our way of life, and our land. Panels on social justice and tackling the opioid epidemic in all Alaska Native communities followed later on Thursday, along with a speech from Don Benton, a Washington state senator who ran Donald Trump's transition team and now heads Selective Service. Benton asked for help getting the word out to the 41 percent of Alaska's young men who have not registered for the draft. On Friday, the agenda will cover a number of updates from the committee reports. Special guests include Kim T. He, president of the Native American Contractors Association, and in the afternoon, community speaker Paul Charles from the New Talk Tribal Council. Panels also include perspectives on climate change and Alaska's military leadership. From Anchorage, Alaska, I'm Christine Trudeau. The AFN newscast produced by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation and Native Voice One. Funding support from South Central Foundation, Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, Shalisto Corporation, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Manalik Association, and the Rasmussen Foundation. This is a production of KNBA, Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service. Welcome to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm your host, Antonia Gonzalez. Strength in unity, leadership, partnership, social justice. That's the theme of the 2017 Alaska Federation of Natives Annual Convention. AFN leaders say building relationships and getting people motivated is part of the effort at the annual event to help organizations, tribes, and community members statewide. Leaders of tribes, native organizations, and grassroots efforts are seeking to build the capacity of tribal priorities and advocate for healthy communities and call for equal access. We're, look, we're taking a look at social justice in Alaska today, and I have some guests joining me to talk about this, and let me uh, have them introduce themselves. Go ahead. Well, good afternoon. My name is Richard Peterson, and I'm the president of Central Council Clinkett and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Antonio. My name is Greg Razzo, and I serve as the chair of the Alaska Criminal Justice Commission. Hello, my name is Grace Singh, and I'm the new executive director for a new Native political action movement called Native People's Action. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us today. And um, you were on stage earlier with um, some state leadership. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, well, we were there to talk about uh, the Governor's Tribal Advisory Council and the work that we've been doing. And it was really exciting today to share um, one of the things that we've been pushing at is uh, tribal recognition by the state of Alaska. And, you know, we're 229 federally recognized uh, tribes in Alaska, and we have compact now, we've had contracts with the state of Alaska, but we've never had official recognition. And so we had been pushing for that for some time. And so the governor had asked his attorney general to give him a legal opinion, and uh, she did that today 
And the legal opinion is there are 229 sovereign tribes in Alaska. Uh, surprise, we're here. <coughs> and uh, so we were able to um, get that official recognition and status. And so what, what, um, what kind of, uh, how is this gonna help tribes in the state? Well, one of the things that we do is we contract for, with the Department of Public Safety for VPSOs. And out of all the contractors, they're all tribal organizations or tribes. And then one is the Northwest Arctic uh, Borough. And they're actually a municipality, municipal borough. And they, they actually have kind of more rights than we do. Like they can um, deputize their VPSOs and they can do things like that where we've sat in meetings and like, well, since we don't recognize tribes, they don't have that status, we can't do that with them. Yet we, you know, Central Council, for instance, we have over 200 employees. We have an annual budget of over $25 million. We have complex um, programs and capacity to do a lot of what anybody else does, and probably more so than actually a lot of municipalities outside of like Fairbanks or Anchorage or Juneau, you know, we have that strength, we have the experience and the foundation. So now this puts us on that um, e e even playing field, I guess would be the best way to term it. And uh, Gregory, what do you have to add about how this um, can help tribes here in the state? Well, I think this is really a paradigm change. This is a new way of looking at the relationship between the state of Alaska and all the tribal governments that exist in Alaska. And it really allows for expansion of many ideas about jurisdiction in the law. And I think that in and of itself is going to be a significant change because it does do the things that Richard talks about. It recognizes that tribes, through their self-determination and their sovereignty, have the right to do policing. They have the right to enforce their laws and, uh, and have their own courts. So those three things are governmental functions that a tribe has been performing and can perform. They've been performing those things for thousands of years. And Grace, with your work with your new group, how are you gonna incorporate working with tribes in the state? Well, right now we are um, co-hosting event with the tribal governments in Alaska, the November 27th, the Monday before the BIA Providers Conference. Um, we are co-hosting a tribal unity event to build capacity for tribal governments, get the information out there to them so they could represent themselves and with their special relationship as governments, they have influence with the state and federal government on how we can manage universal issues like public safety, which will contribute to not only rural Alaska, but urban Alaska's public safety issues as well. And there's a lot of different issues that are being addressed here at the Alaska Federation of Natives Annual Convention. A lot of announcements, a lot of um, various uh, officials on local, state, federal level talking with tribes um, and also community members. And this week there was um, also uh, an initiative that was um, brought attention to um, dealing with child welfare. So let's see what uh, that person had to say. For this compact, we've been really negotiating for about the last year and negotiating language for about the last eight months. The compact is a government-to-government -government agreement between the state of Alaska and tribes who are interested in assuming uh, a wide variety of child welfare services. So a tribe will be able to decide uh, what kind of services they feel like they can provide on behalf of their community. So some tribes may be starting with assisting with home visits, 
Other tribes may be interested in licensing uh, foster homes, and other tribes may be interested in providing a broader array of service. You know, some tribes, quite frankly, uh, have been operating uh, child welfare programs for a long time. Uh, they have 4E agreements uh, that have been um, in place for several years, but this really takes us to the next level. Right now in Alaska, we have a pretty significant disproportionality problem. Alaska Native children make up about 22% of our state's population uh, for children, um, but represent about 55 to 57% of children in out-of-home placements are Alaska Native or American Indian. And so that kind of disproportionality tells us that we know what we're doing right now um, isn't working and we can do better. This model is really modeled after the Alaska Tribal Health Compact. And what we've seen in tribal health is that um, when the federal government was providing health care on behalf of Alaska Natives um, in small communities or large communities, there's only so much you can do from outside. And what we saw is that transition from 100% federally operated programs to uh, tribally operated programs in the tribal health system. And what we learned from that experience is that children and families have better outcomes when care is delivered closer to home. And we know that same opportunity exists in child welfare services. So if a tribe, let's say that tribe is interested in assuming um, child welfare services, they can decide at what level they would like to be involved. And so if it's a tribe who's really never done this before, they may work with OCS to, or with another tribe who has experience to determine at what level they would like to be involved. So are they, they may be interested in assisting with the investigation, they may be interested in doing the investigation, uh, determining placement, um, licensing of foster homes, etc. So it's really, it can be a small thing or it can really be a large thing depending on what the tribe is interested in doing. This has never been done before and uh, it was pretty, pretty significant. There are federal and tribal compacts, but this really is the first state tribal compact for the provision of child welfare services in the country. And that was Valerie Davidson with the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, and she was talking about the compact and um, child welfare. And uh, Richard, she had said that um, tribes will be able to decide what level they want to be involved in. Can you um, share a little bit about um, your plans? Yeah, well, Central Council, you know, we still have to negotiate actual contracts now under that compact. And so Central Council, like some other uh, regional tribes, our tribal organizations have already been operating a lot of these. This really just um, solidifies it a little more. And so like we, we, we signed a 4E agreement, I think almost two years ago. And we've really, our tribal family youth services has built a capacity. We, we partner with OCS now, already do home visits. We have clinical um, therapists on staff now. So, you know, we're gonna be able to decide for ourselves kind of what level each one we want to take and so we're going to look at it and see what capacity we have and what capacity we can grow to and luckily we through this we'll be able to kind of do it in baby steps if we need to or take a giant leap if we're already there and uh, Gregory how do you see this fitting in um, with the with children here in the state it's really a huge step forward um, I practiced children's law for many years and oftentimes you would have the Indian Child Welfare Act worker in the courtroom 
but they weren't uh, afforded the same position that the lawyers for the state or the lawyers for the child had in a courtroom, and that'll be different going forward. This recognition and this, this sort of, uh, of service so that we have uh, self-determination by our tribes in order to perform the kinds of service that are best for our children, it's really a giant step forward. And um, Grace, do you um, have any input on maybe providing culturally relevant services when it comes to an issue like this? Yes, definitely. You know, tribal governments in Alaska have a lot of federal funding to provide and to better provide services for our children that w we can dictate be culturally relevant. And, you know, protection of our children should never be a policy call all governments in Alaska should be just as invested in protecting Native children. And this is a huge step forward that the Alaska Native vote got us. And moving forward, we just like to continue to build capacity to advocate for these crucial policies. And um, there's a lot of different meetings, a lot of different conversations taking place. And right before uh, AFN was the Tribal Leaders Conference, um, that uh, took place, we got a chance to speak to people there and see what are some of the issues that they were talking about. Um, so let's go to one leader. Phyllis Ivan from Lower Kalskag. I'm the tribal president. Our priorities for our community that we're, our council are currently working on is um, public safety and tribal courts. We haven't had any public safety in our community for many years. Our council was our tribal court, but we want to improve that to where um, it'll better serve not only our community members, but others. And that was uh, Phyllis Evan talking about um, public safety and tribal courts being uh, one of the top prior tribal priorities for her. Um, what is the state of public safety like right now in Alaska? You know, I think it's a really dire situation right now. You know, we have the VPSO program, which is woefully underfunded. Um, we, in my region, southeast, we have communities right now that are in a state of constant fear. You know, we don't have, we have communities with a t lack of total protection at all, you know, and it's really frustrating. You know, in the last couple of years, we've had murders. You know, we had a young girl murdered in a village and, you know, no real protection there that that village still has no protection in another uh, village we had a young lady murdered last summer and before the troopers could respond and to um, take care of the body her body laid in a rock quarry for days you know no family should experience that and that kind of um, hyper fear that's being built up you know I, I get calls almost daily right now um, with people frustrated, scared, and not knowing where to turn. And I really believe the opportunity that's been laid out with the compact for OCS is our next best step for public safety. We've laid out the framework. We've demonstrated that we have the capacity. We already contract for the services. Let us compact. Give us the freedom to do more so that we can, you know, address recruitment and retention, which are big problems. You know, yeah, it, it's a probably the biggest issue facing us right now, I think, as tribes in rural Alaska is public safety. And Gregory, what are some of the, um, I guess, uh, solutions that you see that need to be done when it comes to public safety? Well, public safety is in a crisis right now here in Alaska. We've got the opioid epidemic, which is really 
driving people to do things they probably wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, that's uh, stealing, you know, looking uh, for drugs anywhere they can find them, breaking into houses, um, you know, gunning each other down as far as dealers are concerned. And it's, it's terrifying and it's terrible. And it's the consequence of uh, the state's failure to have a fiscal plan because we don't have enough money in the state right now dedicated to public safety in order to protect our people. So by cutting the prosecutors, by cutting the troopers, by uh, cutting the hours the court system can operate, by defunding public safety because of budget reasons, we put ourselves in a crisis. And uh, Grace, what are you hearing from families um, who are coming to you about different uh, public safety concerns uh, and the justice system here in the state? Well, um, as President Peterson said, the rural families in Alaska, this is an everyday struggle for them. And now, um, with the, like what Greg Reiser said about the opioid epidemic, this is now spilling into urban Alaska and becoming an urban problem. And so I think it's important to note that the rural tribes does have the government infrastructure to administer their own justice. And, it, and public safety shouldn't be a policy call. Every government should be invested. The tribes, the state, and the federal government all have resources to address this. We're lucky that our federal delegation has finally recognized the need for tribal court funding and we're beginning to build capacity there and it's just a matter of getting out the Alaska Native vote to push for these policies that will benefit all of Alaska. Yeah, you know what's concerning to me is right now the state of Alaska um, is more concerned about the banishments that are happening in communities where uh, communities, tribal governments, they're taking it upon themselves to banish suspected drug dealers. I mean they know in the communities that they're drug dealers but we really need to, as tribes, we have the opportunity with the tribal courts to demonstrate that we have due process. And I think that we need to exercise that. And I think we need to host more tribal court trainings and continue to build that capacity so that when the banishments happen, there's been due process and it doesn't undermine the future efforts of the tribal courts and our efforts to con compact and you know, public safety. Can you tell us a little bit about the tribal courts in your community? R right now we have a tribal court that we're building uh, in Juneau that's been operating for a little over 10 years now. And we've uh, just signed a civil diversion agreement with the city and borough of Juneau, which I think is also pretty historic. The fact that the municipality has turned to the, the tribe. And so we're gonna be um, hopefully working with youth in a culturally um, appropriate way. You know, you heard it earlier through both Greg and Grace, culture is our cure. You heard Commissioner Davidson say that, you know, and I really believe that. We had um, Dr. Walter Soboloff, who is an elder who has since passed, but he, he would always say to us, when we know who we are, we don't hurt ourselves. And that was having our cultural values, our cultural identity in place. So we're gonna do a lot of um, kind of prevention programs and taking at-risk youth. But, you know, if they're doing small things, if they've, you know, pick, you know, uh, shoplifted or something, we're going to get them in a culturally sensitive program that's going to divert them from a career of criminal being labeled. I think one of the big things is we put kids in the current court system and they get labeled a criminal. They get put in a halfway house or a, not a halfway house, but a youth center. And that's where they learn to be criminals. 
And so we need to use our culture and the methods that we can to address that ourselves. And the court system, Western ways of handling things, um, there's sometimes a fear by outsiders, whether it be the state, federal government, or even locally about tribal courts. Um, Gregory, you had something to add? Well, Richard brings up a good point. Um, I've been working along with the Alaska Criminal Justice Commission on criminal justice reform for the last four years. And uh, what our research found and why some of the laws in Alaska changed was because the research shows that folks that are encountering the criminal justice system for the first time, that are low-level offenders, that are uh, being prosecuted uh, and convicted for crimes that are uh, not serious crimes, they're uh, property crimes, those folks have a tendency to actually do more crime when they go to jail because they learn things in jail that are detrimental to, uh, to them and they come back out of jail with better skills than they had going in. And that's that's a problem. That's why those are the folks that should be diverted to tribal courts, that should be given the opportunity for diversion agreements because sentencing and going to jail isn't always a good punishment. Sometimes the punishment, the alternative to sentencing, is actually being treated and going through treatment. And that's a more productive thing than jail. Go ahead, Grace. Uh, I was just going to note that restorative justice initiatives um, will benefit all of Alaska. The criminal justice rates throughout the country and the amount of money we spend on incarceration isn't worth the recidivism rates. This isn't how public safety should be resolved. And now that we have the opportunity to prove that cultural relevance and even um, the type of restorative justice where you make that low-level criminal feel valued in the community enough to come together and address an issue, that's where we can have real restorative justice in not only our rural areas, but in urban areas as well. And uh, Richard, can you comment on maybe the, the perception of tribal courts versus, you know, well, they're a tribal court? Yeah, and I think a lot of the public are concerned that well, these kids or these young folks are just going to um, be given a pass. Oh, they'll go take an art class or something, and they're not really um, paying for their crime. And that's not the case at all. It's really about accountability. It's taking ownership of your actions and seeing how it not only affects your future, but affected the person that you might have committed the crime against. Whether, you know, if you shoplifted and it's a small mom-and-pop store, they're they're struggling just to keep the lights open and pay the rent to keep that business going and you know you've had an effect on them and so it's taking that kind of accountability and helping them realize they have a positive place in in our community and that they can even though they've made a mistake they can make atonement for that work with that shop maybe volunteer some hours there whatever to repay their crime but then also do it in a way that builds them up instead of tearing them down and the and the cultural aspect of it um grace you were talking about restorative justice um so what do you think about about what richard was saying about bringing back and making somebody feel welcome in the community yes especially for my generation and younger i think it's important um, to make that connection back to our culture and our traditional ways of life I think there's a huge disconnect now, especially with kids like me who grew up in urban areas. Um, you know, we don't always feel at home or valued by our community. 
but when we see our community reach out to us, especially um, when a crime has been committed enough to communicate that restorative justice in your life's trajectory is so important to our culture and the future of our people is powerful. Well, today we are at the Alaska Federation of Natives Annual Convention, and we have some guests joining us to uh, talk about social justice. Um, the theme of this year's convention is strength and unity, leadership, partnership, social justice. There's a number of issues that are being discussed. Um, there's also a lot of different events and activities that take place, not only here at um, the convention, but also a lot of meetings. Um, as we said earlier, uh, this is an opportunity for tribal leaders, uh, AFN delegates, community members to come and, and hear from um, a, a lot of different leaders, local leaders, state leaders, federal officials. And so we're looking, taking a look today about um, advancing social justice in Alaska. We have to take a quick break and we will be right back. Welcome back to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez, and today we are talking about advancing social justice in Alaska. There's a lot of different issues being discussed at the 2017 Alaska Federation of Natives Annual Convention, and I have some guests here today who are joining me. Um, please reintroduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, I'm Richard Peterson, and I'm the president of Central Council Plinkett and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska. Thank you for being here. Hi, my name is Greg Razzo. I'm the Alaska Native member and chair of the Alaska Criminal Justice Commission. Thank you for being with us. Hello, my name is Grace Singh, and I'm the executive director for Native Peoples Action. And um, Grace, I haven't really given you a chance to explain what your new organization is. Go ahead. Yes, uh, Native Peoples Action aims to build the capacity of the Alaska Native voter electorate and the capacity of Alaska tribal governments to push for these social justice policies. All right, great. Well, thank you for joining us again. And um, there are a lot of uh, speakers who get up on stage at the convention every year. There are a lot of um, different people who are asked to come and speak. Um, on uh, Thursday, we heard from uh, Sergeant Jody Potts, who was one of the key, uh, AFN keynotes. Let's hear what she had to say. We need the courage to stand up for what our values tell us. And they tell us to protect the land. We need the courage from our leaders to say, no, we're not going to develop in the Arctic Refuge, at the birthing grounds of the caribou. We're going to protect the Arctic Refuge. We're going to protect Bristol Bay and the watershed of the salmon. 
that's who we are. We were protectors, we're defenders of our people, our way of life, and our land. When I think of partnerships, especially today, you know, we really need to uh, work on our partnerships, and sometimes that means our partnerships among our own. You know, it's really disheartening when sometimes money comes between our people and our way of life and our values. And I really want to encourage our leaders to partner with our tribes. Our tribes are federally recognized. They are considered sovereign governments. There is so much strength in that. Now, they don't have a land base. How can we strengthen our tribes? How can we partner with our tribes? They're going to be the ones that lead us into the future. They, the tribes are grounded and rooted in our traditional values like no other. I've seen it. Social justice. I think about what my mom taught me. She was really a social justice warrior. She taught me to advocate for myself. She stood up for what was right. A lot of women in my community did. And that was um, Sergeant Jody Potts, who was giving an address at the Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention. Grace, uh, she talked about a social justice warrior and uh, um, touched on women. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the importance of women being social justice warriors? Yes, well, um, Alaska Native societies are traditional matriarchal. And I was raised by a very strong Alaska Native woman that instilled in me our traditional values and she never backed down from a fight, even with my dad, on those important <laughs> issues. And um, especially nowadays, our traditional ways of life aren't communicated through the various governments that um, we all participate in. We all participate in tribal, state, municipal, federal governments. And when those governments don't align with our way of life, our traditional ways of life suffer and and even on a very local level our tribes need to represent those interests our corporations need to represent those interests and it's a matter of alaska native voters taking ownership of their communities getting out the vote and letting their elected officials hear from them we're here where we make up a large percentage My name is Barbara of Franks, rural alaska but also in urban alaska this, you know, Anchorage is known as the biggest village, and we need our elected officials here to be responsive to our traditional values. And something else that she had mentioned um, was uh, uh, protecting um, the way of life, protecting the land. And then there's always this um, balance between protection and development, economic development, resource development. Um, can you explain a little bit about how your tribe see, sees a balance or tries to balance that out? Sure. You know, right now we have an issue in southeast with uh, transboundary mines. These are mines that are happening on the Canadian side of the border, but the headwaters flow into our area. And, of course, it's about our traditional way of life, but it's also about our economic way of life. And, you know, as coastal Alaska depends very much on the fishing industry, you know, it's at risk. So we, we're in an area right now where both our traditional and our economic ways of life are threatened by 
large development. And we're not against development. Most of us are very pro-development people, but it has to be responsible development. It has to be done in a way that we're assured that it's not going to jeopardize. And, you know, we've seen it. I grew up um, really in the heart of the logging industry, and I've seen just, you know, swaths of clear-cutting. And, you know, you'll hear the argument, well, it grows back, we're in a rainforest. Well, that's true, but you know, my community, because of following uh, the standards that were in place with buffers and things, our watershed was declared a, a disaster by the governor uh, when I was mayor there because they cut into our watershed and then we live in a rainforest, our high winds, high rains um, really impacted us and destroyed our watershed. So we had to um, really deal with that issue and so we've seen when when there isn't the balance that needs to be when we don't have a voice at the table and creating those regulations then we get the negative impacts and i think that's what's so important about what the um, new group that grace is the executive director of is really helping encourage our people to get involved get engaged run for office help develop policies that are balanced you know we need an economic future there's no doubt about that but when it's at the sake of our resources it's the sake at a, of our way of life sometimes you have to say it's not worth it and that's what i heard really loud and clear in jody potts statement and i'll tell you she moved me i was choked up i was motivated i wanted to get engaged and i'm like wait a minute i'm an elected official i am engaged that's how motivating <laughs> she was and grace shares that message and you know I love what the Native Peoples Action Group's about. It's time to warrior up. You know, we have to be the warriors that our people were for tens of thousands of years. It might be on a new playing field, but we still have to be a warrior. I feel like I'm a warrior. And you know, I come from a matrilineal society, and I'm wondering where are our, our female warriors right now? You know, when I today we saw the uh, rural caucus get up, you know, um, all of them, and great to see that we have natives in there now where are our native women you know we need to see them in those positions we need to be represented across all levels in proportionate ways instead of the disproportionate ways we are now we're already the minorities so you know but we're disproportionately represented and then even as as native for native women even further so and so i grew up around strong women as well and uh, my mother is a warrior, and that's what I expect to see. And, I, and I'm kind of feeling lost as a Native man because I don't see our women in those roles that, you know, we've had them in for tens of thousands of years. And uh, real quickly also, can you add um, part of um, development and bringing opportunities to tribes is this issue of land into trust. Can you give us an update on that in your tribe? Yeah, so Central Council is one of the ones that has applications in place now. And really we're just kind of waiting. Uh, our applications have gone through the public comment process. And really they should be approved anytime, but we're unsure kind of in what's happening in D.C. Um, we're hopeful that with the recent appointments, filling those vacant seats will finally get things moving again. So I'm anxious to spend time with Tara and talk about our projects. And then uh, the new director of BIA, Brian Rice, he's not Alaska Native, but he's Native American. And he spent most of his career in Alaska. So I'm hoping that it won't be a hard sell for those two. I think hopefully they're going to go into those positions kind of geared up to get things moving. 
And so let's go ahead and talk about um, this appointment. We have uh, Tara Sweeney who has been tapped to serve as Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs in the Trump administration. She was, she's here, uh, she was on stage, and we got some reaction from AFN. Hoffman, I'm the President and CEO of Bethel Native Corporation, and I serve as a co-chair of the Alaska Federation of Natives. The Alaska Federation of Natives is ecstatic about the appointment of Atara as Assistant Secretary of the Department of Interior. It's empowering for Alaska Native people, for Native Americans everywhere. Tara's caliber is, uh, she's stands on her own. She is well-versed in Alaska Native corporations, in Alaska Native tribal operations. She's a tribal member. She has served on the Alaska Federation Board for many years, served as a co-chair as well. She was always very engaged with corporations and tribes and the nonprofits. Uh, she grew up in Barrow, uh, so she has that rural Alaska experience that will give her the breadth to be able to relate to people on so many levels. Her experience is really well fitted to serve in this federal capacity. I think she will be a resource not only for Alaska Native people and Native Americans, she's going to be a resource for the federal government in a way that no one else in that role could be. I think the expertise that she brings is her ability to engage. Um, regardless of the topic, Tara is open-minded. She knows how to establish forms of engagement across geographic locations across the state of Alaska. When she was involved with AFN, she would host teleconferences to provide a level atmosphere for engagement from people to call in from the smallest village to the largest community and she would give them a forum to be heard. So that's what I think Tara will bring that people will appreciate. She's obviously with her experience at ASRC, she's an expert in uh, resource development and corporations but she's also served on her village corporation in the board, so she understands the, the function and purpose of the small village corporations as well. It's been her life's work to be involved with Native issues and organizations. And that was Anna Hoffman with AFN um, just commenting on uh, Tara Sweeney, who has been nominated to serve in the Trump administration. And uh, Greg, what does it mean to have somebody who comes from Alaska, who's Alaska Native, to serve on these various positions if she is nominated or if she is confirmed? Tara is going to do a great job working for the Department of Interior. Oftentimes what happens is Alaska Native people will go to Washington, D.C. to try and work on some policy or another. And you have to explain how things work in Alaska because they're different in the rest of Indian country. Here in Alaska, because of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, we've got just a different federal Indian policy that almost nobody understands. Uh, so this, uh, this creation of Alaska Native corporations, the recognition of tribes, all of those things have to be explained, but with Tara there, we won't have to explain it to her. In fact, she'll be in a position to, at the highest levels, explain about federal Indian policy in Alaska to everyone. And Grace, do you have anything to add? 
Uh, yes, Tara Sweeney is a strong Alaska Native woman. When I first met her, I, I was in my first job in the legislature, and she was just so fearless in her representation and really held, and her career has been holding um, governments accountable to Alaska Native interests. And we look forward to working with her and her representation of traditional ways of life in federal policy. And um, there's also here at the convention, um, different types of uh, social issues are being discussed and something that, you know, there's a lot of people advocating for a lot of different issues. And somebody I talked to uh, has a suicide is really, and suicide prevention work is really close to them, um, not only here in Alaska, but the lower 48 uh, Native people are really struggling with this issue. So let's hear what uh, she has to say. My name is Barbara Franks, and I'm with the Statewide Suicide Prevention Council. One of the things that we're trying to do is uh, continue to lift the carpet of the stigma and taboo that still is attached to suicide. You know, and having community members uh, come in and tell us what concerns they have and what gaps we could try to help them um, close up. You know, because we're so far, few and far between our neighbors, you know, and we're all spread out, it's really difficult to have the resource that some larger communities have like Anchorage. And what are some of the challenges that are facing, you know, facing people today, especially here in Alaska, um, when it, you said there's still a taboo about suicide, what are some of the other challenges? I think our, our um, depressed economy has a lot to do with it. You know, um, the fish and game um, have rules and regulations, you know, and they're getting more strict on that. A lot of people who depend on subsistence aren't able to do that because the window to go out and, and get food for the winter is uh, a really close, close window. You know. So the, I see a lot of businesses around the Kenai Peninsula area where I live right now, and a lot of organizations are closing up shop, you know, and so what are our men supposed to do to provide for their family? Like be an honorary auntie and honorary uncle to help our young people make it through that rough storm. And why, what drives your passion to work on this issue? Why, why are you so involved? And you've been involved for many years. Tell me a little bit about yourself and why you do this. Well, um, come December 14th, it'll be 20 years since my son died. And um, it's, you know, the, the, the one thing I want people to know is that there, there is healing that is taking place. And when we change how we talk, People used to say to me, um, but he was only 23. But in order for me to heal, I needed to change how I said that. I say, he blessed me with 23 years of his life. And when I look at it that way, uh, it gives people hope that someday I'll be able to talk about my son without shedding that tear. But I look back on the memories that he shared with me, and there are a lot of happy ones, you know, and so everybody's on their own personal journey. And that was uh, Barbara Franks who was talking about suicide prevention efforts, and she touched a little bit about some of the challenges that people are facing, including jobs um, here in the state. And um, Richard, she had mentioned that often it's a taboo to talk about this. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, 
a lot of the issues that are facing our people kind of lay in the darkness and and even in our own culture in our own families we tend to either ignore or leave them in the dark and you know as hard as these conversations are it's kind of time to drag them into the light and talk about them openly and honestly and courageously and it's really difficult to do that i know you know we just hosted a, a violence against women act training in our region and you know we had that courageous conversation and we heard women talk about some of the things that really happen you know from sexual abuse to um just physical abuse mental abuse these things and, and then we need to address generational trauma and i think people want to say hey get over it but you know i know in my own household and my parents you know um both of my parents are native but both had non-native grandparent or fathers and so large siblings and their alcohol were issues and abuse. And I was really privileged to grow in a house and blessed where I never seen my dad raise a hand to my mother. He always held her up in love and respect, but both of them came from families where that wasn't the case. I was an only child who grew up not knowing I was an only child because I would wake up and we were a safe house and a refuge for those in our family that were abused. And, you know, it's hard to talk about, hey, I woke up to my auntie and I hadn't seen in years and she had two black eyes. You know, we don't want to admit those things and talk about them. You know, the fact that my parents had to, without help from OCS, because OCS said they weren't good enough, but they took in nieces and nephews. And that's a real hard issue to address, you know. But I think we're developing programs. Um, Central Council is really blessed. We have a really strong tribal court system developing. We have an amazing judge in Deborah O'Gara and our Chief Justice Michelle Demert comes to us and she was nationally involved with helping not just draft some of these laws but testifying to them. And I think it's our tribal courts where we're gonna start seeing, seeing the healing take place and really unfortunately having to shine that light in some really dark places. But I think we, we have the wherewithal and the talent and the um, capacity to do that. And Greg, your thoughts? Well, I'm older than both Richard and Grace, and I grew up in the era when uh, it wasn't good to be an Alaska Native. It was something that you didn't talk about. It was something that you tried to pass if you could uh, as a, a non-Native person. And that created a, a culture of silence. And uh, so when I was growing up, uh, to be identified as an Alaska Native person, especially coming from the part of uh, Mountain View that I grew up in, uh, you knew that was going to be a problem and you did everything you could to avoid it. So that culture of silence uh, exists today, but, but much less so because we're teaching our young people the things that Richard is talking about and the things that Grace is talking about, that, that now you can be proud to be Alaska Native and uh, along with that pride comes the ownership and the leadership of becoming involved, becoming uh, a person that can confront things like suicide prevention, that can confront uh, domestic violence, child abuse. All of the things that plague our people are things that we can directly confront these days because now we have a different way of looking at all of our people. It's, it's not uh, something to be ashamed of, it's something to be proud of. Go ahead, Richard. You know, I, I think I, I'm going to bring some hard truth, too, though. 
one of the things as tribal leaders we need to start addressing is we got to quit holding up um, people that are those that have um, perpetrated abuse into the roles of leadership and we kind of tend to turn a blind eye to that I, I've personally made a pledge to myself recently I'm no longer going to stand by and hold those folks up I'm no longer going to turn my eye to men who talk in misogynistic ways and put our women down and I, and I want to challenge all of our leaders to do that because you know what how do we ever get over something how do the victims ever come out and be that voice if they're looking at somebody in leadership that might have been the one that did that to them go ahead grace i just think that greg and richard are just so both courageous leaders enough to talk about these hard issues and as a young person um, as a young alaska native female i am so frustrated when a bunch of adults sit around talk about native youth suicide uh, like they don't know the hardships we've gone through, like our generational trauma didn't come from the generations from us. And I think that um, Alaska Native youth need to stand up and demand our own families take responsibility because this is the abuse that occurs is a reflection of the assimilation and colonialism our grandparents felt at boarding schools due to missionaries and uh, right now our communities are protecting the perpetrators and as a young person I'm tired of it I am lucky to have mentors like Greg and Richard um, to be courageous enough to have these conversations but as we build capacity for the Alaska Native vote and the tribal governments, we will have these hard conversations with our leadership. We are tired of it and we're ready to have these healing conversations. And that includes having accurate history taught in school about what has happened only two generations ago. And Grace, you had mentioned, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Greg first. Well, <coughs> Grace is exactly right. Um, our friends at First Alaskans Institute are mounting a social justice initiative which is aimed at being transformative about the things that Grace is talking about, about having an accurate history of our people, that is a history that was written by our people, for our people, and not a history that's about us, but that comes from us. And that, that change in how we, we have our history can result in change in how we think about ourselves and how others think about Alaska Native people. And that is what results in transformation. The, the, the uh, process is called truth, racial healing, and transformation. And uh, Grace, I was going to ask you, you mentioned voting. Um, can you uh, talk a little bit about why voting is important? Well, I think the wellness of our people, public safety, protection of children, you know, I don't think there's any political interest that is more important than that. I don't think that um, any of these issues should be considered left or right. I don't think that they should be considered political interests. This is the interest for all of Alaska. And when the Alaska Native people are able to have their voice heard and have our traditional values based in sustainability happen on a policy level, not only will it be healing for us, but it will be sustainable for all of Alaskans. And Richard, what is the challenge in tribes? Um, you know, when we look at statistics, uh, tribal people across the country uh, often don't go to the polls. 
No, I think, <clears throat> sorry, I think a lot of us just feel disenfranchised. You know, we don't see the representation there. But, you know, I keep kind of speaking a lot lately about be that change. You know, uh, you hear it all the time, be the change that you want to see. Well, you know, my Klinget name is Shakya Ish. I'm Kaguantan. I'm named after um, <clears throat> Rand, uh, Andrew Wanamaker, who is Elizabeth Pradovich's father. So in my family, we hold it very sacred to vote. Like, you know, I, I grew up with that, but not a lot of our people have, and they for, forget, you know, a generation ago, we wouldn't have had the right to vote. Women would not have had the right to vote if it wasn't for Elizabeth Paradovich, not just natives, but women. And I think, you know, we gotta um, be constantly vigilant. We have to be constantly reminding ourselves of that. And, you know, people sit back and complain. You know, I, I see it every time, like our governor gets up and talks, there's all these kind of hecklers there and complaining about things. Well, if you don't like it, get involved. Be a part of the solution. And that's what I hope to see out of what Grace's uh, group is, is let's start being solution oriented. You know, it's real easy to sit back and be um, negative and complain and complacent, but we have to get engaged. We have to, but you know, we also have to feel like our voice matters. And so I think that's on us and I'm proud of Grace and the group that put this together because it's time for us to quit being complacent and to show that we matter. When we joined together, I mean, we all learned how to spell Murkowski together, right? So we got Murkowski elected because the natives unified. Well, we should do that every election and not just statewide or national, but at your local level. I sat last year in, in the city borough of Juneau fighting to keep our um, Quinket, um language class going. And, you know, we showed up in mass and we made a difference. We have to continue to demonstrate like everything matters, not just this one issue, not just language, not just this, but everything. We have to be there. And then we struggle to protect our language as well. If we were there voting, we would be doing it. You know, if we voted and passed a measure that Alaska Native Indigenous languages were a requirement for school, even one semester, we'd save every language. You know, why aren't we doing those things? Well, thank you for that note, and we're going to end there. This has been Alaska's Native Voice. Thank you to my guests for joining us today to take a look at advancing uh, social justice here in Alaska as the Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention is underway here in Anchorage. And I want to thank uh, Lauren Dixon for engineering the show and producer Daisha Eaton. I'm your host, Antonia Gonzalez. AFN, Alaska's Native Voice, produced and directed by Antonia Gonzalez, Daisha Eaton, and Nola Daves-Moses. Funding support from South Central Foundation, Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, Shalista Corporation, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Manalik Association, and the Rasmussen Foundation. This is a production of KNBA Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.